Welcome to Sky Women. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, a wife, mom, and board-certified OB-GYN. This is a place to educate, empower, and inspire. Join us each week as we share the power of women's stories. Real women, real stories, real inspiration. Put on your stretchy pants. Let's get going. Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to this episode of Sky Women. You are in for a treat because this is not only the 100th episode, but this is our first roundtable. And we have with us today some very special ladies, some physicians who are really experts in their field, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. We have had Dr. Heather Hirsch, Dr. Lindsay Harper, and Dr. Samina Rahman. So go ahead, ladies. Why don't we start in my block? I've got Samina up here on the left. Go ahead, Samina. Oh, hi. How are you? I am Dr. Samina Ramon. I'm Gyno Girl on Instagram in case you guys have followed that at all. But I am an independent gynecologist in private practice in downtown Chicago, where I specialize in sexual dysfunction, menopause, and pelvic pain. And, you know, issues around vulvar dermatoses. Those are the kind of the bread and butter of what I see along with a little bit of regular vaginal and uterine things happening to people with those organs. So, (laughs) and I have an affiliation with Northwestern and yeah, I I love having my own practice and living downtown. So we're all part of ISHWISH, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. So I think that's a great society to either be involved with or have information about, as well as I think most of us involved with NAMS menopause society so i think that's how we all know each other we don't practice near each other (laughs) that's right (laughs) that's right we take a pair of vagina owners and we're all members of ishwish which is the international society for the study of women's sexual health and i think that's kind of how this friendship kind of grew between all of us we actually samina and i actually became friends at Lindsay's event at ishwish this last year so Lindsay, go ahead and introduce yourself Well, that's the best story ever. I love that. I didn't realize that. I am Dr. Lindsay Harper. I am also an OBGYN. I am super focused on sexual medicine and just sexual health in general. And I am the founder and the CEO of a platform and a company called Rosie, where we try to create and provide evidence-based information and interventions to women with sexual health problems. Um, so Rosie is an app that women can download on their phones and get access to like most of y'all and other lots of other experts as well, including physicians, but also sex therapists, public floor physical therapists, anybody really who's involved in the field of sexual medicine, sexual health has helped us with Rosie. So I'm super passionate about this. And one of the things I love best about sort of the startup space in women's health and also women's sexual health, the new version 2.0 is how collaborative and supportive everyone is. And this is just another example of that. And so I'm so excited to be here today with all of y'all and for your support literally every single day. So such a treat. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. I am just honored to call you gals friends now that we've met in real life because we were virtual friends before. And now um, Heather Hirsch, if you don't know Heather Hirsch, you should absolutely go and listen to her podcast, subscribe to her podcast. It is phenomenal. She's writing a book. She's teaching courses. She is just amazing. Welcome, Heather. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. 
I absolutely echo your statement, Lindsay, that together, like we are really stronger. It's a little cliche and a little cheesy, but it really, really is true, especially when it comes to elevating women's health for me, particularly in midlife and at menopause, because it's been made so invisible for so long, but that parallels sexual health at all ages and that parallels pelvic pain at all ages and obstetrical care that's beyond just delivering a healthy baby right care for mom. So all of us are so uh, laser focused on these issues, but the wider topic here of midlife women's health is so, so, so important. So yes, I'm Dr. Heather Hirsch. I am a, a NAM certified menopause expert and I see patients and do a lot of crazy stuff on social media. You're doing all the good on social media, especially when it comes to midlife. So I love having your expert. Thank you so much for joining. And all of you probably know, or if you're new to the podcast, I am Dr. Carolyn Moyers, a board certified OB-GYN, and I am a NAM certified menopause provider as well. I'm a member of Ishwish, as we mentioned earlier. And my secret sauce is that I have a fellowship in neuromusculoskeletal medicine. And so I treat back and pelvic pain, specifically in pregnancy and postpartum, because we need reliable solutions so that women can enjoy their pregnancy and have a joyful pregnancy. But you don't have to be pregnant to get osteopathic treatment, and it feels really great. So that's me. But today we are going to focus on the topic of vaginal health in our 40s and perimenopausal symptoms and how that kind of impacts life. So let's go. Who wants to start? Well, I think, I mean, I'll start. I, I, I just saw a patient that had these symptoms. <laughs> and so I feel like one of the big things around this topic is that women are not, or vagina owners are not in the know about this. Like they'll just, you know, that they have these issues, either vaginal dryness, painful sex, starting to have some urinary symptoms, you know, and, and even the other perimenopausal stuff, like the brain fog, I know is a big deterrent for a lot of my patients who are dealing with being CEOs or they're, you know, at work and all of a sudden they can't think of the word that they're about. And so that can be very embarrassing. And this is, I know it's not on topic with the vaginal stuff, but it is one of these all encompassing symptoms that I think that a lot of perimenopausal women face. And I think the fact that we don't either the providers don't know enough about it or, you know, have an interest enough about it that they don't delve into this topic. And additionally, I think the patients are being told that this is something normal and that they should just suck it up. And, you know, there's not much that can be done about it, which are all false statements. And so I think that, you know, it's just the lack of awareness, which is why we're here, right? We're here to build more awareness on this issue. And people really struggle in their 40s with these issues, either emotional ability, the vaginal stuff, the urinary stuff, wake up to pee in the middle of the night. I mean, all these are real and they can be very inhibiting for your lifestyle. And even just you doing the normal stuff that you were able to do great when you're in your 30s, like being the best at your work or whatever, you know, athletic stuff, whatever the case may be. And I think that is the biggest downer that a lot of my patients face. And when I, when I'm, when I see them and I can tell them like, look, this is happening because of, you know, the natural processes of your life. It's actually like, wow, I'm not crazy. And <laughs> this is something that it, it, it brings them a sense of relief. And then the fact that we have solutions for them. I think those are the big issues that a lot of them face. Yes. I think you highlighted there is a lot of misinformation out there and even from other providers. I mean, I've had patients who come to me after two or three doctors and being told that this is in their head or that it's too early for treatment when they're truly symptomatic. I think that really highlights just a problem in women's health generally. You know, there's there's kind of what 
women expect medicine to be able to do. And then there's what it, what medicine can do and what's known about and been well studied. And there's a huge gap between the two. And I think yeah. as we, as women who are also physicians are growing up and kind of seeing all those, we're like, wait, what the heck? <laughs> like, what what is the problem here? Why isn't this information easily available? Why hasn't, you know, why don't we have more options for women across the board when it comes to a pregnancy complication, contraceptive options, you know, menopause choices and options? Like the, for me, the field is so just wide open for opportunity, but what it requires are, you know, eyes on the ball, like someone to be asking the questions. And then the second is funding from all across the board, from a research perspective, from a drug development perspective, even from a behavioral health standpoint, we really need to make sure that we understand all of the evidence-based opportunities for women. And we're all obligated to do that, you know, especially as we start to recognize those deficits. And now that we're, you know, talking about care for ourselves, right, pretty much like this will change, but it's going to take all of us to do it. So I think that there's such an opportunity here and it's frustrating sometimes because patients, you know, really deserve more and need more when it comes to what we can offer, but especially when it comes to training of physicians and other healthcare professionals on these topics. So unfortunately for sex medicine and then also for, you know, menopause treatment and and lots of other areas of women's health as well, sometimes it requires a lot of self-advocacy to get to the person that you need to be in front of or to you know, have an educated conversation with your provider about what your options are. And that's just the state of where we are today. But it is important to know that there are options out there and there are people that care. And so once you know those things, then you have a little bit more agency to kind of get where you deserve to be. Yes, you brought up some really good points. One, that as we as physicians are aging, like, I feel like it makes us a better doctor, you know, because like after having children, I'm like, oh, like moms of multiples, I get why you can't make it to the gym. Okay. (laughs) Like, I feel like as we grow, we evolve and we definitely learn more. And I applaud every one of you who have kind of stepped out of the box of traditional medicine to really think like, how can we better serve these patients? Because there are so many gaps. Yeah. And I'll also add to that, that so many women, particularly since we're centering on women in their 40s before their menopausal, think that they are alone and think it's only happening to them. 100%. And that really echoes the comments of, you know, you could have a woman who's, you know, super intelligent very proactive or, you know, the other, it doesn't matter. Right. But most women will tell me that their friends don't talk about this, that they think it's only them and that it's super normal yet at the same time, assume that there's nothing that can be done. So that is a part, I think too, of perimenopause being a sort of separate beast from menopause, because Mm -hmm. as was already echoed, there's some sound bites that people know about menopause, but not everything. If perimenopause, which is kind of on statistically average in our forties is menopause's 
ugly stepsister or whatever you want to call it. There's even (laughs) less that's known about that. So I think another issue facing women is they feel like it's only happened to them and that, you know, at the same time, there's something abnormal about them, but that there's probably nothing that can be done. It's just kind of like we as women take everything as well. You know, that's just part of being a woman, right? Yes. Yes. But we evolve like over the years. What I have to remind patients is what does your 40 year old body need from you now? Right. Because it's not the same as when we were in our twenties or when we were in our thirties, but I want to dial it back. Cause I just realized we probably need to define what is menopause and perimenopause. Take it away, Heather. So menopause by the textbook is 12 months of no period and lab work that shows your follicle stimulating hormone level is high above 30 and your estrogen level is low, usually less than 20. But most women do not follow the textbook. Some women don't get periods if they've had a hysterectomy, have an IUD or have had an ablation. And other women will have surgical menopause or early menopause because they'll have their ovaries removed. And sometimes people freaking forget when their last menstrual period was. Yes. They've got the textbook definition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Perimenopause, the definition of that, is the time leading up to that one day where you get to celebrate to say, today is menopause. You're always postmenopausal after that. And the average age in the United States is 47, although myself, And many others think that perimenopause probably starts a little bit earlier than that. It's really hard to get robust data. We don't have clinician reporting to the CDC exactly when perimenopause starts. So on average, age 47, I think it's a little bit earlier. But if you have any any reason to have an earlier menopause, then perimenopause is even earlier. So there's your textbook definitions, and then there's what happens in real life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have seen women at 42 who are like, you know, haven't had a period for 10 months, have all of these symptoms. don't know, you know, feel like they're completely losing their mind and you do the labs and you're like, well, there you have it. You know, like (laughs) everything pointed to that. I probably didn't even need the labs to do it, but let's, let's start treatment. Like we don't have to wait until we're officially menopausal to start treatment. But vaginal dryness is one of the first symptoms a lot of women are experiencing early on. It's feeling like they need more lubrication or, you know, they just, they need more lube when it comes to sexual pleasure. And so we can always recommend a lot of lubes for them, but can we talk a little bit about vaginal health and kind of what happens to the vagina as we age with us dropping estrogen levels? Sure. I mean, obviously when our estrogen levels, not obviously, but our, as our estrogen levels drop, the pH of the vagina starts to change. We're normally in a, you know, acidic environment becomes more basic. We start having changes in, you know, collagen production. So, you know, the vagina might get thinner. It might get less moisturizing. You don't get less of your natural discharge because, you know, we we tend to have less of that normal, good, healthy bacteria, you know, the lactobacillus mm-hmm. ones that actually allow for lactic acidosis that then promotes like a, a more of acidic pH, right? So I think the combination of, you know, the declining estrogen levels with leading to some of these changes in, in the microbe, the bacterial uh, microbe, as well as the changes in the collagen and the tissue that it develops. Again, also the urethra and the bladder also lined with estrogen receptors can have these problems 
that cause like a thinness, maybe a redness, depending on, you know, how far out you are in terms of last estrogen use, or even for like really postmenopausal women that have, you know, can have significant changes in the vagina that cause, and we, and we kind of rate this as an, on the vaginal health index score. I think some of us try to use that to give us an objective measure of what the vagina sort of looks like based on the pH, the elasticity, and all the other factors, the moisture. Well, and with the fluctuating levels of estrogen and perimenopause, you know, that's when we start seeing some of these symptoms. And then in postmenopause, it just, you know, drops off the plummets. <laughs> so I always explain to patients, and you guys might get a kick out of this, it's kind of ridiculous, but I always explain the vaginal epithelium and like what's going on with the vagina. It's like our young, healthy vagina is more like a Ruffles potato chip is ruffles have ridges and they're nice and hearty and you can dip them in anything, right? And then as we age and we have less estrogen or it's more like a laced potato chip. It's going to crack. You can dip it in anything. But it's thin, it's almost transparent. You know, you can see yeah. through it. And that's kind of what happens to that vegetable <laughs> as we age. Brilliant. Less, less bold. <laughs> You'll never look at potato chips again the same. I will never. I was waiting to think of some kind of response, but yeah, I will never. Wow, I like it. I like it. <laughs> you know, the other thing I was thinking as you guys were discussing this point, back to these definitions, a lot of women will unnecessarily rely on lab work. And we know that lab work, that FSH and that estrogen level, are not helpful at all during perimenopause. And when the symptoms start is really such a clear indication of when perimenopause is starting. And so for you listeners, we really want you to take that message home that unlike your blood pressure, where it's an objective thing that you can see, that's how I know I have pre-hypertension, symptoms are going to really drive perimenopause, which is another reason why when you do notice this, you are not alone. This is really common. And it could be your first symptom to know that you are in perimenopause. Agree. For Agreed. sure. A couple of things there too, Heather, that I think are so important from a like listener standpoint. I, and I know all of us are inundated all the time with questions about measuring hormones. And I think that there might be like a great conversation to have around like when is appropriate and when is not appropriate. Or maybe if you, I hear a lot of times, like I asked my doctor to measure my hormones and she wouldn't do it. And so what's, I know Heather, you do a lot of education about this. What do you like, how do you guide people with those recommendations? Yeah. So I usually say that because our hormones are always in flux, your estrogen and your FSH at any one given point in time are actually not that helpful now. However, if it's validating or helpful to get labs done, it's really cheap and easy to do. And I will always offer that for my patients. But the thing here is two main things. One, clinical context is so important when interpreting that lab work. So you can't look at that lab work because it's always going to look, quote, normal. There is no red flag in terms of your FSH and estrogen in perimenopause. So you have to understand why was it taken? What symptoms did you have at the time? And if you are a data-driven person, they're more helpful over time. So more points on a graph can be helpful, still not perfect. So I always explain it with that caveat of like, look, 
It's not that helpful on its own. Your symptoms are really the important drivers. Can we do this without your lab work? Of course, we can treat symptoms without your lab work. But if you're a woman who really likes her data, likes her spreadsheets, fine, let's do it. But make sure that we're not looking at isolated lab values because that's just not helpful. Okay, Heather, what about whenever they come in and they say, oh, I just, I did it with that at-home kit and I swabbed my mouth and I got my lab results. Can you take a look at them and tell me what I need to do? Yeah, that's really so hard because... I think this circles back to the fact that women feel very confused and they're not sure where to go and they are marketed to. And they don't know what is helpful and what is not. And they're trying to be proactive and figure out what's wrong with them. Just like all of us are trying to solve our own problems in daily life. So we almost always start by validating that I understand why that lab test seemed like a good option for you to gather more data, but it is really hard to interpret your data in a different lab with different reference ranges, you know, but let's try and use the data that we have, you know, do you, can you go back to that time or when you, you swabbed your cheek? you know, and tell me what you were experiencing. And since this is hard for me to interpret and you really like lab work, let's do another set here in my in my lab. I know that's exhaustive, but it's really the only good way to make sense of lab work. It really has to be taken in that clinical context. So a lot of what I'm doing is really validating to patients and listeners that I understand why that would be helpful, but unfortunately it's not all that helpful. Yeah. Well, I think we cannot talk about vaginal health in our forties and not talk about vaginal estrogen. (laughs) Vaginal estrogen is like collagen to the face. Our vagina loves estrogen and it helps. It does the body good. It helps with so many things, preventing urinary tract infections, maintaining the pH of the vagina, increasing the lubrication of the vagina. And all of these symptoms, 100% affect sexual health and our sexual wellness. What you say, Lindsay? Sorry, I had to unmute myself. Absolutely. I mean, what I feel so passionately about this, as I know that we all do, and, you know, estrogen has really gotten, had a hard road since we all became doctors. And I think we're all doing everything that we can to sort of undo a lot of that harmful narrative. But especially when it comes to talking about vaginal estrogen, which you just apply locally to the vagina, that that conversation becomes so much clearer because we know that that estrogen does not, you know, go systemically, that it works only in the vagina and you get all these benefits. So sort of the opposite of what Samina was saying earlier, we get to instead like enjoy a fountain of youth through estrogen in the vagina, right? We get our ruffles back and we're able... We're able to tolerate much more, you know, let's say I'm trying to friction, right? We're able to make our own lubrication. We're able the the walls of the vagina, the actual cells get thicker and plumper. And there's, you know, because of the bacteria that result from the estrogen, we're protected against infections, both in the urinary tract and in the vagina. So it's really, to me, it's a very easy decision. Like, just like I will put all the creams on my face, I will put all the estrogen in my vagina. And also, you know, we should also on the, on the topic of sexual health, talk about testosterone in the vulva as well. And, you know, that can be important with aging too. And so I would love to get y'all's 
practice sort of recommendation on when you reach for estrogen only or when you may reach for a FDA approved DHEA or something like that. I'd love to know how y'all approach that because I always slant towards the DHEA recommendation because then we get the double whammy for both the estrogen and the testosterone. And they're off label, but there were some positive sexual side effects noted for the DHEA FDA approved product. So I'd love to know how y'all think about that. Yeah, I've actually started using more vaginal estrogen or estrogen and testosterone combination cream recently because I've seen more patients with vulvar disorders that I think they would benefit from. So I really think it's individualized and I really wish more patients would get a mirror out and actually look at their vulva and see what's going on. So we're talking about vaginal health, but when everybody says vagina, they're oftentimes talking about their vulva, right? Which is the outer lips of the vagina, that external genitalia on women or vagina owners, should I say. And a lot of times if there is a skin disorder, you know, you can see fusion of the labia. You can see the labia kind of almost receding the labia menorah a lot of times. And so there are times that I'll use a combo. Yeah, I agree. And particularly with the patients that have that initial penetrative pain with sex, I'm always reaching for that estrogen testosterone combination cream that I get from one of our validated pharmacies um, that compound it because there's not an FDA approved version of that cream particularly. But the DHEA, the intro pain brand is Intrarosa that most of us use. I've had patients that have used the estrogen and then they try the DHEA and they're like, whoa, this is so much better than the estrogen alone. Like, so if, if their insurance covers it and they're able to do it, that's probably the first one I reach out for. If, and you know, And it depends on the age too, right? Like some patients don't want to do something every night. Some patients, you know, would rather have the estrogen ring in the vagina or, you know, they feel comfortable with the cream, the estrace cream, because they can apply it on the external vestibule as well in the vulva area. So it is very much patient dependent, but if, you know, all things are equal and a patient's willing to do sort of a nightly regimen, I do reach out for the DHEA first if they, if, if their insurance is going to cover it. Yeah, I echo, this is Heather speaking. And I think if it was more accessible and more cost affordable, I would do it as first line. Not to say that estrogen alone is particularly easy or cost-effective. It's certainly easier and it can be cheaper. But if we had, you know, readily accessible products that were FDA cleared that were indicated for this use without black box warnings and without fears, it would be so much easier. And I, I find in sexual medicine and, and, you know, the, what we're just now talking about that insurance coverage is so it's another one of those just giant gaps where it's like, man, you know, we've got so much that we could do or so much more that we could do. And our hands are just kind of tied and patients, you know, it just sends the message and actually reaffirms the message for women that it's just not that important and it's not worth investing in. It's not part of their overall health. And that's just so damaging because it, you know, we all know here that it is, and that's been validated on the men's health side. And so I think the, the more we can push there. And I mean, we're working on it in so many ways, but I I just think that that's going to make a huge leap for us once we can start to see a little bit of movement in the coverage for these things. And you have to think like, I I always tell patients, you know, like that suffer from endometriosis or PCOS, where there's like one in 10 that have these, you know, because at least we have some percentages with some of these things. Whereas 
the range of sexual pain, depending on the data, is anywhere from like, you know, 5% to 75%, depending on which study you, you say. But I tell patients, you know, 10% of men had debilitating pain seven days out of the month, especially, you know, we'd have the answer, we'd have the etiology, we'd give free medication, like it would be out there. But unfortunately, we don't live in that type of world. And so, you know, we have to do the best we can to advocate for our patients. And and for the listeners out there, it's really important for you to advocate for yourself. The biggest thing that we see so much of, and it's, you know, been shown time and time again, is implicit bias against vagina owners, against vagina owners of color. Like, you know, there's so much out there that if, and I tell patients, sometimes when patients are like, I'm sorry, I was so pushy, you know, even if I, even in my situation where I feel like I'm aware of implicit bias, but sometimes, you know, you it's implicit bias. So you just, you know, it falls into that equation of you don't mean to do it. And so, you know, patients, I tell them, you got to advocate, you got to get out there. If someone's not listening, find someone that does listen, because if we don't advocate for our own health, then nobody will. So, and we're out here as, as your, you know, doctors and OBGYNs and everything, trying to advocate as much as we can, but we also have to, one of my biggest tools I like to give my patients is the power of education so that they can say, okay, this is what's happening to me. And if I don't see Dr. Rahman next time, I'm going to talk to whatever clinician I can talk to and tell them this is what's happening and this is what I need. Can you help me? Agree. Being your own healthcare advocate is really key. And I mean, there are people who you can pay to be your healthcare advocate if you feel like you're getting the runaround, but hopefully in your own, you know, gynecologic <laughs> health, you know, we're not talking about cancer or end of life here, you know, or something truly complicated. Although I do feel like sometimes perimenopause and menopause feels complicated because there's so much misinformation. So really, I would like to point listeners to some great resources like the International Society for the Study of Women's sexual health and like the North American Menopause Society, if you're looking for somebody in your area who is an expert in sexual health or menopause medicine, then those are really some great resources for you to find who is trained in this. And you might have to travel depending on where you are. You know, you might have to travel to find somebody, but when you find the right provider, it's really worth it to have that quality care, have somebody who will listen and cure your symptoms and and let you know that there are so many options. There are really so many options. One of my favorite options to also to bring up is the S-string. I like to call it the E-string, but I always get people telling me that I'm saying it wrong. (laughs) The reason I like to bring out the E-string is because it is a great set it and forget it. So even we're talking about parasterone, which has estrogen and androgens, um, which is the insert. Of course, we haven't talked specifically, but there's estrogen cream and there's estrogen inserts. But so many women in perimenopause in their 40s and, and making a big assumption are, so busy running after older generations, younger generations, working at their jobs, working with their partners, you know, keeping their lives together, that sometimes vaginal dryness does fall to the wayside. Mm -hmm. And I believe some of the research shows, and Lindsay can tell me if I'm right or wrong, that there is sexual health changes that specifically start in the 40s, but not as bothersome to women as it is in their 50s. And they often wonder if it's because it just doesn't make the priority list. So back to the E-string, I bring it up because it's the one method that is a set it and forget it. So you can put the ring in. It it looks kind of remind a patient of like a Nuva ring or a diaphragm or a sponge that you can put at the upper third of the vagina, right back by the cervix of the vaginal cuff. If you've had a hysterectomy, I'm it for three months and it's a great set it and forget it method. 
But we also have to mention that that is the one form of vaginal estrogen that actually does give us an elevated systemic level of estrogen. So that is one that we can use for systemic therapy as well. But I have had a patient who was prematurely menopause. We had tried her on multiple different methods. And that was the one that she finally was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how much pelvic pain I was having. And now I can enjoy sex again. And it, the E string or the S string was the one for her. Yeah. <laughs> well, and don't forget there's a difference between that ring and the fem ring. So the fem ring is systemic hormone therapy. The E string is local vaginal estrogen. The E string is local vaginal estrogen, but you can get a little bit more systemic absorption. Oh, right. Fair point. Yes. I was thinking of the fem ring. Yeah. Yeah. Fair point. Every once in a while, you know, you got to double check wh- which ring you're prescribing. I yeah. you are know, <laughs> going to get systemic ephemering. Yes. <laughs> but I think that ephemering is really good because you get that local and systemic effect, right? Because the downside to some of the, like if you're taking systemic hormones, sometimes you still need the local treatment or most yes. of the time you still need the local treatment. So I like the ephemering and those patients who want both systemic and local treatment and they want to just forget it. And usually these are ones that have been hysterectomized, we have to say, because it's only estrogen and not the progesterone. Correct. Yes. If you have a uterus still, you need progesterone therapy. Otherwise you probably don't need any progesterone. Although a lot of women say it helps with sleep. And so taking it at night is is reasonable if that's part of your regimen. What do you think about, and I know it gets a little confusing for patients whenever they're talking about hormone replacement therapy, hormone therapy, and they have been because I've seen several in the last week who have come to me with thick endometrium, abnormal bleeding, and they've been on their compounded hormones by some hormone center and they were rubbing some progesterone cream on their body, right? And like, we have some things that we're going to use off-label. We're going to, we have some things that we're going to use compounded, but for the most part, we're using FDA approved medications for their hormone therapy to try to avoid some of these adverse effects that can come from mismanagement of your hormone therapy. Yeah, I'll just start by saying there's, and this is very complicated for patients to figure out. We wouldn't expect you to be able to do it, which is why you go to someone who have credentials that you trust behind their names. But there's a difference between using something that's you know off-label and there's a difference in that between something that is not evidence-based. So there's no, it, the onus should not be on the patient to con- figure out what is evidence-based versus off-label. But I know that four of us here well, and I can, you know, really vouch that we practice evidence-based medicine. And so when you're talking about progesterone creams, that's not evidence-based medicine. It may, you know, other things that we do might be off-label, but they do have data behind them. So that's where we really get into like the trouble that that healthcare consumers have today, because to your point, there's so much being marketed to them. And how are people to know what's legit and what's not legit. They really cannot. And so that's a a big problem to be solved, in my opinion. Agree, agree. And that's why it's so important, all the work that each of us are doing on social media, because we know that so many people are consuming their healthcare information on social media. And so while it seems a little goofy, and I think it may be a stretch for all of us to have, you know, transitioned to being present on social media, (laughs) 
from the way we were raised up in medicine, right? I think it's so important to be there and to be present because this is where patients are going. And so providing them evidence-based medicine, even if it's just a clip or a snippet where they're getting an idea of, oh, okay. And so now they know a resource or they have some actual facts to take to advocate for themselves. The other thing that's challenging for patients too is like this idea of like a like a very short path to get to where they want to go. You know, it's like, oh, you're feeling badly. Let me give you like three supplements and then tomorrow you're going to feel great. Where, you know, to get in to see a fabulous doctor might be months, right? We weren't, our practices weren't built to be, you know, just like churn and burn. They were built to take really good care of patients. And you find the opposite at these hormone centers where they can get people in the next day and they can get stuff, you know, and so it's a challenge. And I think that, you know, as many of us have risen to the challenge when it comes to disseminating in a, in a large scale way, this, this evidence-based stuff, we also have to figure out how to really meet people where they are mm-hmm. and provide them the things that they are expecting as a, as a true healthcare consumer in order to overcome these challenges that we're facing. Yes. I cannot thank each of you enough for all the work that you were doing. And, you know, we mentioned Ishwish, we mentioned Nance as a great resource. Heather, I know you have courses available also for women who are going through menopause. And of course, the Rosie app, I just tell everybody to go download the Rosie app for their sexual wellness. Just do it now while you're in the office. Go ahead. I'm waiting. There's just so much work to be done. Anybody listening today, like there are just massive resources just between um, the ladies who are here today, these amazing physicians. So would you just each take a turn and tell everyone where they can find you? Sure, I'll start. So our website is meetrosy.com, M-E-E-T-R-O-S-Y.com, or you can just search Rosie R-O-S-Y in the app store. We really are dedicated to women's sexual health. So if you're suffering from a menopause problem related to that, or really anything else, sexual trauma, body image, shame, pregnancy, infertility, really any women's health need, we have lots of great resources provided by many of these women on this podcast. And also my Instagram is Lindsay Harper MD, but my name is spelled differently. So check the show notes. (laughs) That's right. I'll go next. So this is Heather Hirsch. I'm obsessed with all things menopause and midlife. And it's because I know that women are not taught enough about our bodies at the end of our reproductive life cycles and this invisibility surrounding the time leading up to menopause and through the menopause transition is such an important aspect of our lives. I believe it sets up how we experience life in our, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, millionth decade. So you can find me on all my social media handles. I'm at Heather Hirsch MD. And I just thank you all for being such inspirations for me and for having me on the show. Absolutely. And your podcast. Oh, yes. I have a podcast. My podcast is Health by Heather Hirsch, and it covers all things menopause and hormone therapy related. Great. And so, and this is uh, Dr. Samina Rahman, and I'm in Chicago. I am on Instagram, not as much as I would like to be, but I'm Gyno Girl, and I do have a YouTube channel that I'm sort of involved with, but I'm off and on with. I have a love-hate relationship with social media. So <laughs> it's Guide Girl, Girl TV. And basically I am a big advocate for, you know, disseminating this information too. I uh, try to do puberty talks uh, to schools in the city. 
the same way I try to do menopause talks, you know, to different community centers here in Chicago as well. So I always tell my patients in their forties when I see them and I'm just meeting them for, you know, just general reasons, like you get a puberty, you should be getting a puberty talk. You should be getting, I'm about to go into menopause talk too. So Yes. <laughs> yes. So I think that two things are inevitable in our lives, taxes and death. Yes. <laughs> so, Fantastic. Anyway, thank you so much for having uh, me on this podcast as well. Thank you, I everyone. You, I love all you ladies. You're amazing. And an love to everyone. Until next week, be well. All right, Sky community, thank you for listening to another episode. This episode was sponsored by Sky Women's Health. As a reminder, we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and we help relieve back pain and pelvic pain in pregnancy and beyond. If you are pregnant and having pain and you feel like you have no reliable way to relieve it, look us up at skywomenshealth.com, request an appointment, and we'll call to get you scheduled. As a board-certified OB-GYN with a Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine Fellowship, I help you realign with hands-on drug-free treatment and relieve pain on the spot without medication. We'll help you maintain these results through your pregnancy and postpartum period. Every pregnant person deserves this, and we are so excited to serve you. You can find us on our website, as mentioned, or on social at Sky Women's Health, or you can call the office at 817-915-9803. That's it for today. Until next week, be well.